Hey, this is John, and you're listening to the Mosaic Young Adult Podcast. To learn more about Mosaic Young Adults, visit us online at thisismosaic.org forward slash young adults. We hope this podcast is simply part of a greater conversation you have with Jesus. Enjoy the message. Turn to John 20, 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were For fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) How many of us, when uh, we pray, have you been praying and you just feel like maybe no one's on the other end? Ever felt that before? Just like, I'm just... I hope you're there, God. Don't worry about like maybe sometimes like we read our Bibles and like you feel like nothing has changed. Like you just read a couple of verses and like, to be frank, you're, you're just bored. Yeah, anybody been there? And what are the, the thoughts as those moments happen? Like what, what thoughts begin to seep into your mind? Let's go a little bit deeper. You know, because surely there's a moment in all of our lives where we were hoping and believing that Jesus is who he said he is. That hope was enough to get you through the occasional feeling of boredom in God's word or the occasional tinge of loneliness when we pray. But there are moments in our lives where our hopes were somehow dashed away by circumstances. Anybody been there? And so suddenly that, that faith that you felt was so strong begins to crack from the blows of doubt. Is Jesus who he said he was? Can Jesus do what he said he could? I mean, does he actually love me unconditionally? Is he actually worth following? Is he the only way to have true and abundant life? And if he says, He is who he says he is and can do what he says can do. Why am I met with such doubt? Anybody been there? And it's a necessary question for us to ask because honestly, it's not a common conversation that we have in our circles. 
Because there's an understanding, right? There's an understanding that to be a disciple of Jesus, there needs to be a large faith component to our walk with Jesus. After all, Jesus calls us to be a people of faith, people of trust. And when faith becomes the centerpiece of our walk with Jesus, as it should be, and doubt creeps in, suddenly there's this fear that begins to take root and starts to blossom. Because if we're called to be a people of faith, what do we do with our doubt? Well, the answer seems pretty easy, right? In tonight's passage, Jesus will say to us, and he'll say to Thomas, hey, stop doubting and believe. But many of us have tried that method, haven't we? We just tried to stop doubting. And the tendency that happens in those moments of doubt is that if, if we haven't, if we've tried, we're just gonna try harder. I'm, I'm just gonna believe God harder. I'm gonna pray harder. I'm gonna do more. But, but that's exhausting, isn't it? Because it places our faith more on our own ability than it does on God. And when trying harder fails, what are you going to do with your doubt? You're going to hide that sucker, right? Like, listen, he, no one needs to see this. We're going to hide our questions. I'm going I'm to hide my fears. I'm going to hide it because there's such shame attached to struggling with doubt. Because the logic is, listen, if, if I, to be a Christian, I have to have faith and belief in Jesus. Then if we have doubt, then that must mean I'm not a Christian. Uh, I must not be a disciple of Jesus because I'm supposed to be a person of faith, not, not of doubt. <laughs> what a terrifying thought, right? It's no wonder then that in our, in our circles, in our friendships, in our communities, we don't have these deep conversations about faith and doubt because we think instantly that doubt disqualifies us from being in a relationship with Jesus. And then I, 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 we're tempted to think, I can't have doubt. And I can't share this with anybody else. I must be the only one doubting. And then there's this lie brewing on the inside that says that if there's any part of me that doesn't fully believe in Jesus fully at all times, Jesus will be angry with me and my doubts will keep Jesus away. I mean, Jesus does say, stop doubting and believe. But if I can't do that, then Jesus must be displeased with me. As I think about this relationship between faith and doubt, there's a scene in the gospel of Mark that came to mind. And it's a beautiful one. And it happens in Mark chapter nine. And this father brings his son to Jesus because his son is possessed by an impure spirit, a demon, that's causing this, the, the, the boy to convulse and foam at the mouth. And he comes to Jesus in desperation. He comes with his, with his son and goes to Jesus. I said, Jesus, if you can do anything, if you can throw me a bone here, would you just take pity on us and help us? And then Jesus says, if I can. <laughs> You're asking me if I can do something about this? Anything is possible for those who believe. And it's like instantaneously the father yells, Jesus, I believe. But help my unbelief. I believe, Jesus. But help my unbelief. And perhaps this is where you find yourself this evening. Like you have faith, 
but you have no idea what to do with your doubt or, or maybe your faith is out the window, collapsed itself into doubt and you're wondering, can I ever have faith again? Can I ever trust in Jesus again? And the question we're left with tonight is how can my doubt become faith? Because if Jesus calls us to stop doubting and to believe, then there must be a way in which our doubt can become faith. And so tonight we're going to continue in this mini series in which I've titled, When Jesus Seems Far. And two weeks ago when we first started it, we walked through how Jesus meets us in our grief. But tonight we're going to see how Jesus responds to our doubt because much like grief, Doubt can make it seem like Jesus is very distant. So here in tonight's text, we're gonna see how Jesus interacts with, uh, with the doubt of two separate groups. And so in the first scene, we're gonna see Jesus encounter his disciples. And in the second scene, he's gonna come to the disciples again, but this time he's gonna directly speak to the apostle Thomas. Now keep in mind, John, the writer of this gospel, has in chapter 20 provided these stories about what Jesus did after his resurrection. He wants his readers to know that if Jesus can meet with these kind of people in this story, in this manner, he can meet you in this exact same way. And that might not be a comfort to you just yet, but as we go throughout the evening, I hope that you'll remember if Jesus can meet Thomas, if Jesus can meet those disciples in doubt, he can meet me in this way. And so here in verse 19, we'll begin again. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. And so this, this encounter, right, between Jesus and his disciples are happening on the very first day of his resurrection. Like it hasn't even finished yet. Because if you were to read the first half of this chapter, you'd remember that Mary Magdalene saw the empty tomb on the beginning of Resurrection Sunday, and she ran to tell uh, Peter and John that the tomb was empty, and they have this little foot race and to verify the empty tomb is in fact empty, and they see the tomb is empty, and they go about their business, and as they leave, Mary is still at the tomb, and Jesus meets Mary in her grief, and as that story, that section finishes, he sends Mary to tell the disciples that, he, that she's seen the empty tomb, meaning that there's a risen savior there. And so actually, if you just read very quickly, John 20, 18, this is what it says, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. But where do we find the disciples? Well, it's the evening of the first day, so it's dark. And despite being told by Mary that Jesus is alive, we find them hiding with the doors locked because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Now, in some ways, this is understandable, right? Like they had just a few days before had seen Jesus be brutally murdered. There's a, there's a reason for their fear. But on the other hand, they had just heard that Jesus was alive. That meant that Jesus was exactly who he said he was that he was the Messiah, that he was Jesus, the God-man, second person of the Trinity, that this was no ordinary man, but Jesus was the only one who could step toe-to-toe -to -toe with death itself and win. And yet, they're hiding in fear. Why? Like, if, if you knew that someone could defeat death, would you be afraid of death? 
Like, isn't Jesus strong enough and loving enough to protect his disciples from these Jewish leaders? Of course he is. But the disciples respond out of fear because they doubt Jesus. Doubt can make Jesus seem very, very small. Our doubt almost becomes like this very real and alive being that we feed until it seems like our doubt overwhelms and pushes out Jesus from our hearts and our minds. And it is in this condition of doubt and fear where where Jesus enters. Notice his words and his actions, right? Verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were so glad when they saw the Lord. So boom, he shazams his way into the room and out of all the things he could say, Jesus opens with, peace be with you. Now this word peace stems from the Old Testament word shalom, to be whole and satisfied. Now these are things that doubt can never bring us. In fact, these are the things that doubt robs us of in the shalom. It robs us of wholeness and satisfaction. But Jesus says this statement over them. He's blessing them in their doubt. He's giving them favor despite their doubt. They're hiding, right? They're hiding in the darkness away from these Pharisees and these Jewish leaders because their fear of man is greater than their trust in Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He comes and he blesses them. What? You know, it's kind of like me going to LeBron James. So you can't dunk that ball. Have you seen the man? He'd probably be pretty ticked off. He'd probably use me and dunk me. In the, you know, like he just. But Jesus says, no, I look at your doubt and I'm going to bless you with peace. And then he points to the scars in his hands and the wound on his side. And I love that he does that in the moment. He says, peace be with you. And he shows them the wounds as if Jesus knew that they would doubt the blessing of peace. Like Jesus, listen, Jesus, I know you want us to be in Shalom. That's cool. But like, do you see what's happening out there? Like you were just brutally murdered days ago. How could I possibly be blessed with peace in a world of destruction? And Jesus shows him the scars to declare shalom over them. That his peace comes from the fact that he's overcome the world. That if he can overcome the world, we don't have to be afraid of our circumstances. We don't have to doubt him when hardness and and hardship comes our way. We don't have to doubt this blessing of peace because Jesus has overcome. And then the disciples in that moment were overjoyed with this news. And it could end there, but then Jesus says this in verse 21 and 22, right? He gives, he provides the disciples with a commission and a provision. He says this, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This is the commission. This is the mission of Jesus. He's sending them. As the father has sent me, I'm sending you. And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the provision, You see, Jesus' resurrection was part of the mission of God to save his people. And that mission then is extended to his disciples, to you and me, and to anyone who professes to have faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's the commission. 
And as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you, Jesus says. But then Jesus gives another provision beyond the peace. He gives them the spirit of God. He's tying them together that in order to achieve the mission of God, you need the provision of God. And so as Jesus said earlier in the gospel of John, the people of God will receive the Holy Spirit so that they will be empowered and guided by God himself for the mission of the Father and the glory of the Son. But I don't know if you noticed, but Jesus has just commissioned the worst people in the world to do it. He is sending them to boldly, not like shyly or when they feel like it, but to boldly proclaim the kingdom of God, just like Jesus did during his earthly ministry. But where are these disciples? They're hiding in fear and in doubt. These are not the people that I personally would choose to do courageous work. These are the people that I would bench. But Jesus is a far different savior. Now listen here, if you are here and you feel like doubt and fear has disqualified you from being used by God, hear this tonight. Jesus uses broken, fearful, and doubtful people to proclaim his kingdom. He's commissioned you, despite your doubt, to tell others about him. And he doesn't just send us with a little pat on the back and a good luck. He sends the disciples and us out with the spirit of God, the very power and mercy of Yahweh. And I want us to be reminded for a moment why that matters. I want us to be reminded of the ministry and the role of the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 26, it says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. And then in John 15, 26 and 27, it says, but when the helper, meaning the Holy Spirit comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness about me because you have been with me from the beginning. Now notice that a major part of the Holy Spirit's role in our lives is to teach us, to remind us and to guide us. And in that same way that the disciples are filled with fear and doubt, we too will be filled with fear and doubt. So the Holy Spirit then is given and comes and reminds us of the truth of who God is. And so, Jesus, so the Holy Spirit will begin to speak to you and say, hey, hey, oh, remember Jesus is your peace. Let me teach you the peace of Christ. Let me show you the way of peace through Jesus. It is the Spirit of God that aids us in our moments of doubt, not your own strength. But even though we have the spirit of God, we still will face doubts. Not only because of the things that transpire out there in the scary big bad world, but more often because of our own hearts. You see, the story continues and, and we don't know about how many days it's been or how many hours, but at some point, Thomas comes to the, to the disciples and now Thomas, he's one of the original 12 and he's gonna be an apostle. And we can strongly conclude from history and, and Christian and as well as Indian tradition that Thomas most likely was a missionary to India. And during his time there, he was speared to death by the Hindu priests of Kali. And as you hear this, you might think, wow, that guy had a lot of faith. 
Like, there's no way I'm about to go to India and get speared unless I knew Jesus was real. But ironically, the nickname that Thomas is given through church history is not Brave Thomas, Courageous Thomas, Crazy Thomas, You For Real Thomas. It's Doubting Thomas. Why? We'll see in verse 25, it says, he says to them, the other disciples told him. So they tell him, they see him, hey, Thomas, we've seen Jesus. And he says to them, listen, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now the Greek word for never literally means never. I will never until I see, I will never believe. Now, I don't think it's fair for us or church history to label Thomas as doubting Thomas because his request to see this from Jesus is, has both positive and negative qualities about it. So on the positive side, Thomas just wants evidence. And that's not a terrible thing. This is not the first time in the scriptures where someone has asked God for proof. Like, I, I just need to know that you'll, you'll be with me. And in many ways, listen, asking God for evidence is a really healthy practice because it requires us to ask hard questions about the faith we proclaim. Thomas's question demonstrates or his request demonstrates that it's okay for us to look at God and ask him very hard questions about our faith. Because later in the passage, actually, when Jesus and, and Thomas are talking, Jesus doesn't rebuke Thomas. He doesn't go, listen, how dare you ask me that? Who do you think you are? No, he actually shows him his hands and his side. And so I hope this begins to give you the freedom to start asking Jesus the hard questions because your faith literally requires it. This is what Tim Keller says. Love it. It's a little long, but here we go. A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Now, a person's faith can collapse almost overnight if he or she has failed over the years to listen patiently, to listen... Uh, over the years to listen patiently to his or her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and their neighbors. It is no longer sufficient. Hear this, especially for young adults. It is no longer sufficient to hold beliefs just because you inherited them. It's not sufficient to live off your parents' faith. I just want you to know that. Only if you struggle long and hard with objections of your faith will you be able to provide the grounds for your beliefs to skeptics, including yourself, as plausible rather than ridiculous or offensive, just as important for our current situation. Such a process will lead you, even after you come to a position of strong faith, to respect and understand those who doubt. Ask the hard questions. Your faith depends on it. But the negative side of this is that Thomas's request is his attempt to set the terms of his own belief. This is what I mean. 
Jesus, I will only believe you if you show me your scars. If you answer my doubt in the way that I want, then I'll believe. How many of us have done the same thing? God, if only, I'll only believe in you if you heal me of this. God, God, I'll only believe in you if a check comes in my mail because I can't pay rent this month. God, God, I'll only believe you if you save my mom and dad. God, I'll only believe you if you do X, Y, and Z. This, that is our attempt of establishing the parameters of our belief in Jesus. And so sometimes we're only willing to believe and follow God if he's willing to relate to us on our terms. And when we navigate our relationship with God in this way, the moment that God acts outside of those parameters, he's broken the expectation that we placed on him and then we get angry. God, you you said you were gonna do this. I told you I wasn't gonna believe in you if you didn't do this. In other words, we begin to doubt the God of our own creation instead of the God of all creation. In our asking the hard questions, may we remember that God's response or sometimes, honestly, lack of response will be based on his character and his will alone, not on the parameters you set out for him. But what I love most about this request that Thomas makes is that underneath Thomas's request for knowledge is actually a desire for an encounter. Thomas's request was less about the knowledge that would come from the answer and more about the encounter with Jesus that would come from the request. Eight days later, verse 26 says, eight days after Jesus's first encounter with the disciples, Jesus comes back to them. And I don't know how many days, and the scripture doesn't allude to it, how many days it's been since Thomas said he wouldn't believe until Jesus saw his scars. But what we know is that this whole time, Thomas is in a state of disbelief. He did not know that Jesus had resurrected on the first day because he wasn't there when Mary came and he wasn't there when Jesus came. So then Thomas's request reveals his skepticism. But all in all, we know that, Tom, that Jesus let Thomas wrestle with his doubt for days. Now, some of you might be ticked off by that and say, well, that doesn't seem very kind. Jesus, if Jesus was showing up out of nowhere to the disciples, he couldn't just throw Thomas a bone. But I think Jesus had greater plans for this. He visits the disciples again, it says, and except Thomas is in the room. But notice that again, the disciples were in the house and the door, was it unlocked or locked? Locked. Why was the door locked originally in the first place? Because there were fear of the Jewish leaders. All, what else do you need? Jesus showed up once. Why are you still locking the door, disciples? All of the disciples in that room are still doubting the power and reality of Jesus. He showed them his scars and met them face to face and yet they still couldn't believe. I mean, how many of us have said, man, if I could just see Jesus, I'd never have another doubt in my life. These guys saw Jesus resurrect from the dead, heal the blind, bring someone back from the dead and they still could not believe. And so Jesus repeats the exact same thing he said earlier to them. Peace be unto you. Speaking to all the doubters in the room, meaning every single one of the disciples. And then Jesus turns his gaze to Thomas. 
And he repeats back to Thomas his earlier request. Jesus here is showing his power because he wasn't in the room. He, he, he says verbatim, look what, look what Jesus says. Um, 27, put your finger here and, my, and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus gives Thomas the evidence he asked for. Put your fingers here and my scars. But here's the thing. Thomas doesn't even get a chance. John doesn't say that he put his fingers in. It doesn't even say that he saw it. He doesn't even say that he looked at the SARS. He just saw Jesus, heard Jesus, and all he could say is, oh my God, Jesus, you are my Lord and you are my God. Somehow in that process, his doubt turned into real concrete faith, not an abstract faith tied to like ideas and abstract thoughts, but his doubt turned into faith in the presence of the living God. And what I love most about this scene is that the doors were locked and the doubt was still there and Jesus still showed up. Would you think of any relationship and if someone were to tell you, I, I just don't trust you. I just don't, if you're dating someone and, and, your, part, and your partner said, I, don't, I just don't trust you. How, much, how many times do you have to hear that before you stop dating them? If your friends are like, I just don't think you'll show up. How long, how many times does that person have to say that before you end that friendship? And these disciples repeatedly are showing, I don't trust you, Jesus. I don't believe in you, Jesus. I'm doubting you, Jesus. And Jesus still shows up. The door being locked was a physical reminder of the spiritual reality of the disciples' hearts and minds. Their doubt had locked the door of their faith before Jesus. But just as Jesus was able to get through the door without any help, with a locked door, he, Jesus is able to reach into their hearts and their minds. Nothing can stop God from reaching his people. Amen. And the doubt of his disciples could not keep Jesus out. So hear me tonight. Your doubt does not repel the grace and the mercy of God. In fact, your doubt is a beacon call saying to the God of the universe that you're in desperate need of an encounter with him. That's what your doubt means. Sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking that my doubts will be removed if I just have more knowledge. But faith in Christ is more than intellectual assent. Doubt can still exist even when the facts are on the table. Happens all the time. Think about the media, right? They say something is true and you're like, well... I don't know, Fox. I don't know, CNN. I don't know. The facts are there though. But you're like, I don't believe it. If knowledge about God is all it took to have a strong faith, then all you would need to do is memorize the Bible. Just memorize some facts here and there. Your faith will be solid. But knowing God and knowing about him are two different realities. In fact, James 2.19 says that even the demons believe meaning that even the demons know about God, but they're not in relationship with him. And that's the key to turning your doubt into faith. In both of these scenes, when is it that Thomas and the disciples went from doubt to faith? It's when Jesus arrived and reminded them of the gospel. He reminded them that they can have peace because of his brokenness and his wounds, that he had died for them, that he had defeated death, that nothing was too great for him. 
And the gospel truth was deepened by an encounter with Jesus. They needed to meet with Jesus in order for them to have faith in Jesus. And that applies to us today. Doubt is not removed by knowledge or more of your effort. Doubt is made into faith when it encounters Jesus. See, our faith is a gift. Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine says, for by the grace of God, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of your works so that none of us may boast. This is our hope. Our doubt becoming faith is something that only God can do and is eager to do. That is why Jesus keeps coming back to the disciples. Doubt didn't stop him but doubt needed his presence. And we've bought the lie for too long that our doubts are too much for Jesus or that that Jesus is too small for our doubts. But Jesus is showing us his scars and declaring peace over us. In the midst of our doubt, he's calling us out of our doubts and into faith. You can't outwork yourself out of doubt. No amount of trying harder will cause faith to sprout and doubt to diminish. It isn't until Jesus comes to you and speaks life over you that your doubt will then turn into faith. Jesus will continue to come to us in truth so that our doubt would be transformed into faith. And this is more than a one-time thing because all of us have moments of doubt some will, some will last seconds and some will last months and some will last even years. And we may hear Jesus' words tonight, do not disbelieve, but believe. And then we're stuck with, with fear. And then Satan will use these doubts to break your relationship with God. He'll remind us of this passage and he'll twist it to the point where we don't see it as a gift or an invitation, but as a curse. But let the truth of tonight's passage remind all of us that doubt does not equate to Jesus being distant. Doubt beckons Jesus to come closer and deeper to us. Doubt is an opportunity to challenge and strengthen our faith in Jesus. So I ask you, will you come to him? Will you expose your doubts to him? Since Jesus is not afraid or disgusted by your doubt, he wants to speak life over your doubt. He wants you to live in peace. That turmoil, that bruise in your heart and in the depth of your soul pains and angers God because he wants peace for you. Will you behold the kindness of Jesus as he extends his hands and calls for you to look at the scars and his side and prove that he would go to any lengths to die for you and live for you? And just as Jesus did not rebuke Thomas, he will not rebuke you, but instead he will call for you to feel his wounds and believe. And once we take this invitation to have Jesus confront our doubts. Listen, this is freedom. We don't have to become shameful or angry with God or ourselves when doubt becomes, or when doubt comes because we know that doubt does not break our relationship with God. I am not above this. As I preach this to you, I preach this to myself. I literally need these words. I am Thomas. I am Thomas all the time. 
If there's one area of my spiritual life in which I falter, in which I am weakest, it truly is the area of faith. It's just been like that since I was a kid. I just thought I could know more and think more and just have access to more. I thought seminary would fix it. And then I realized that didn't help either. I thought something had to give if I just prayed harder, did more. Being in vocational ministry must help, right? Like I work in a church, I must have a lot of faith, right? No. This is breaking my own heart as I say this. Just the other day, I'm here with Caleb on a Friday on our day off. And I'm here just confessing things left and right. And one of the things I'm saying is I just don't believe in God. And Caleb has the audacity in like 60 degree weather, which is freezing in Florida, to go and say, you want to go for a walk? I was like, sure, run the building. He goes, no, let's go to the nature preserve. I said, what? It's cold. And I was like, I don't know. And so he takes me to the nature preserve. He's like, listen, you got to talk to God. I was like, I don't need to talk to God. God just needs to stop hiding from me. Like God is just clowning around, trying to hide from me. And I'm just, I'm out here. I'm looking for him. Why is he hiding so much? And then kindly he takes his sweater off, gives me a sweater and he sends me on his way. He goes, I'll see you later. I was like, where are you going? He goes, I don't know. I'll see you later. So I'm just like, I'm so mad. And in 10 seconds, I remember just, I'm walking down 10 seconds. I go, this is stupid. Like literally, I'm just saying, this is so dumb. This is so stupid. And I get getting angrier and angrier. This is so stupid. This is so dumb. This is ridiculous. Jesus, are you even listening? Are you even there? No one else is in this park right now because it's freaking cold. So are you? And I just start yelling. Surprised Caleb didn't hear me. And I'm just yelling. And I don't know, out of, out of that wrestling, all of a sudden, I don't even know where it comes from. I just say, God, do you even love me? Do you even care? And a still just small voice says, I, I love you more than you know. And then I keep walking. I'm like, this is stupid. This is dumb. This is ridiculous. And this trail goes on for a while, mind you. And this is dumb. And it's freezing now. The wind is picking up. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I, and I just remember just going more and more on this trail. And by the end of it, I'm just, I'm, I, I, I know that eventually it's gonna hit the, the lake. And so I'm thinking, okay, this is my spiritual breakthrough. I'm gonna get to the end of this lake and God's gonna show up. And I get to the end of the lake and I'm like, it's cold. And Jesus is nowhere to be found. This is dumb. And I start walking back that long path. And I was like, I'm gonna give it to Caleb in about 10 seconds. If I see that guy, he's gonna hear it. Guess what? Caleb shows up. He's like, hey man. I was like, I hate you. This is cold. I'm angry. God's nowhere to be seen. I don't feel like he's close. There's nothing happening. Nothing is working. I'm praying here. I'm yelling at him. I'm, what else can I possibly do to make the God of the universe listen to me? And Caleb's like, I don't know. I thought you just needed time with God. Fast forward to the next morning. I remember I'm just praying because Rachel's away and I'm just there alone on my day. Uh, it's what, Saturday, I guess. And I'm mad. I'm sitting. I'm like, okay, Lord, I'm here to pray. 
I'm here to read my Bible. I'm mad, but I'm here. So you better show up. And, I, and I'm just, and I'm giving it to him again. And I'm surprised that our neighbors don't get like called 911 because like someone's arguing. Yeah, I'm fighting with God. And I remember, he just, I remember him just telling me, go rest. Go to the couch and lie down. And I was like, no. And so I go to the couch and I lie down. I was like, okay, I'm here. Let's talk. Let's hash it out. He goes, go, just rest. I said, no. 10 seconds later, I'm knocked out on the couch. <laughs> I wake up and I'm like, okay, God, you're right. I was being a little cranky. Let's talk. And if you're expecting I'd end this story for me to tell you everything is okay and that all of my doubts and fears are gone, I'm sorry to tell you that's not true. But that's my story. That is my journey. There is room for doubt in your journey of faith. And I'm not on the other side of it yet. But Jesus is calling me like he's calling all of us every day to stop doubting and believe. And in order to do this, what I've learned most is that in order for me to be a disciple of Jesus in a world of doubt and fear, is that I must learn how to feed my faith and starve my doubt. And as we finish our time together, I just wanna, I wanna offer this to you if you're in a place like me. And you might be thinking, well, do I really want lessons from the guy who's still struggling with it? In some ways, who else would you ask? I mean, I guess you could have a guy here who says, I've never had a problem with doubt. Praise God for that. But I'm just not one of those guys. So in order for us to do this, we must recognize that the transformation of our doubt into faith is a battle, but it's a spiritual battle. There's a reason why Jesus gave the disciples the spirit of God when he commissioned them to be gospel ambassadors. He says this, the apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Faith is a gift, but, but it is something that we steward with the aid of the spirit. And we don't fight this battle of faith and doubt with normal means, but with divine power, power from God. Divine power, it says, to destroy strongholds, arguments, and every lofty opinion that seeks to dismiss our view of God. We cannot fight our doubt with just mere intellectualism and apologetics, but only with the power of God and his gospel. And how do we do that? How do we fight that? Practically, every time, and I'm doing this as we speak, even as I preach, every time a doubt comes, you take it captive. And that word in the Greek for take captive means we take control of it. Doubt does not master you. You take that doubt and you submit it to Jesus. You expose it to Jesus. You say, Jesus, I need you to set the record straight in my heart and my mind. Speak to this lie. This is how you starve your doubt when you chain it and expose it to God's truth because truth is poisonous to doubt. Our doubt needs to be met through an encounter with Jesus. And if that's how we starve our doubt, then how do we feed our faith? Well, just as we destroy doubt with supernatural ways, we feed our faith in supernatural ways. Our faith comes, needs an encounter with Jesus just as much as our doubt does.
So there's three ways in which we feed our faith. We pray. You're like, oh, that's boring. No, 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 listen. Prayer is a two-way conversation in which we feed our faith in prayer because God speaks to us and reveals himself to us. It's where we expose the lies. Like the verses that I just read in 1 Corinthians can easily be done and frequently be done in prayer. We can submit our thoughts and affections before God and ask God boldly to help our unbelief. Prayer is that place where we can ask God to assure us of our salvation, assure us that he's real. You can ask him, not for a feeling. Don't ask for that. I, I encourage you, don't ask God, I wanna feel like you're real. No, no, I want to know that you're real. Ask him that. He can do that. This is a supernatural war and you're asking for God to do a supernatural work in you. So we pray because that's the language of the supernatural. And so then we, the second way we feed our faith is in prayer. I mean, is in reading God's word. Jesus tells Thomas in a way, it tells Thomas, he says, you believe in me because you saw me. Blessed are those who see and yet believe. And all these accounts are written so that you would know Jesus as son of God, the Messiah, and that you would have life in him. This, this book, this text is a life source. All of scripture testifies to Jesus as a living God. And in him, we find life. It is not the actual pages. It is not the actual words. It is the person that these words and pages lead you to. It leads you to Jesus. Scripture will show you who Jesus is, his character, his attributes, his thoughts, his will, and his love for you. And finally, the final way in which we can feed our faith, and which we're gonna about to do again right now, is worship. We finish with this one, with praise. And I mean more than just singing the songs in Z88.3. It's more than your cool worship list that you have on your Spotify or Apple Music or whatever it is, or your YouTube. It's more than that. Praise and worship is an act of defiance of the lies of the enemy. If it's a good worship song that is rooted in scripture, you can be rest assured that you're singing God's truth. And as we engage God in musical worship, we are declaring God's word to God and to ourselves. Praise through worship is a declaration and a reminder to our souls who God truly is. So I'm gonna invite you to stand to your feet. And I'll speak this last things over us. We no longer have to fear our doubts or try harder to remove them. Instead, we get to fix our attention and devotion to meeting with Jesus. This is what drives doubt away. May this lead to long lasting faith in this community of believers that Jesus loves us in the midst of our doubt and will meet us until those doubts become faith. Praise God that there will be a day in glory in heaven when doubt will no longer have a, whole, a place to hold on to because we'll be with Jesus face to face forevermore. Let's pray. God, I pray the same prayer or the same words in which you've shared here over, over this community. Peace be with you. Here are my wounds. Here are my scars. Here is the evidence of my love for you. Stop doubting and belief. This is his prayer over us. 
And Lord, we just ask that you would help us not just say these words, but come under its agreement, come under its power. God, help us in our doubt. Help us in our fear. Help us in our brokenness. Help us not to turn to our doubts, but to turn to the truth that is Jesus. God, help us doubt our doubts and trust in your truths. We need you to do this. We need you. Our faith requires you to show up. So tonight, in this moment, will you show up? In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. And so for the, for the rest of the evening, or whatever's left, we're just gonna step into an extended time of praise and worship. Normally do just one song, we're just gonna do a little bit more than that. Now, this is an invitation and offering onto you to say, hey, take your doubts and expose them to the light that is Jesus. Whether you sing these words or you're just letting it bathe over you, I'm, I'm asking and I'm inviting you, exhorting you to not waste this moment, but to let yourself encounter the living God tonight. That your doubts would be dispelled and that your faith would grow. In fact, I would ask if, you, if, if, you, if there's anybody here who's struggling with doubt in their faith, in any capacity, as we're singing these songs, I'd invite you to just come to the front, kneel, kneel before the Lord, not the team, not me, kneel before the Lord and just say, you can say the simple prayer. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. God doesn't need a lengthy prayer to show up. He just needs your desperation. If you're desperate for him to show up, he will come. James reminds us that God draws near to those who draw near to him. So draw near to him tonight. Come and ask him, help me. I believe, but help my unbelief. Thanks again for spending some time with us on the Mosaic Young Adults podcast. Our hope for you is that Jesus will use this message you just received and direct your heart completely towards him. If you want to hear more messages like this one, please feel free to check out our past episodes and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes.